The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Noor Utayim. Noor Utayim, who is currently a flight instructor in Montreal, Canada, had no idea what the future held for her four years ago when she came to Canada as a Syrian refugee. A leap, she says, that brought her across the globe and above the stars. Noor comes from a family of pilots. Both her dad and grandpa were airline captains in her home country of Syria and inspired her to become a pilot at any cost. After realizing her dream was far from being close, she went on to study architectural engineering in Beirut. In 2017, she was selected to be part of the Syrian Refugees Resettlement Initiative in Canada, and upon her arrival, began learning French, looking for work, and applying to local universities. It was then she realized that she could finally make her flying dreams come true, and she began flight training. Six months later, Noor obtained her PPL and had her eyes set on doing her commercial license and instructor rating. She now enjoys instructing full-time, and finds a lot of joy and happiness in sharing her passion with student pilots and hopes to become an airline pilot in Canada one day. I could not be more excited to have her join me. Welcome, Noor. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. I'm so excited to have you join me, and I've been looking forward to this a whole lot. Me too. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Actually, it goes back to when I was around 16 years old. I was starting to finish high school and was deciding what did I want to do. And since my father was a pilot, I always wanted to go that way too. Now, my father, uh, we lost him when I was five years old, so he wasn't pretty much there. It's only, you know, the photos and the stories from the family. Um, So I started to call flight schools, uh, mostly in the States, because that's where he went. And uh, just to see how much the cost will be to go into a flying school. And um, unfortunately, the number was too big for me to even imagine that it'll uh, uh, happen or for me to go to a flight school. So I had to go another way. Uh, My plan B was architectural engineering because I enjoyed the drawing and designing a lot. Um, I ended up graduating high school and I went to university in Lebanon. I started architectural engineering and I was always thinking that I'm gonna finish, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna save money and I'll learn how to fly. Now this is a long way to go. And I remember one of my professors, he told me, I really don't think it'll happen that way because when you finish, you're not gonna wanna change the career you do right now. But I really wish for you that you'll find a shorter way for you to make your dream uh, happen. Things happened and I had to drop uh, out of university. I was pretty sad because I didn't know what's next. And I started applying to come uh, to Canada as a refugee because of the war in Syria. So this is where I came here in 2017. And I started uh, to look into recrediting my courses from the university to continue here. Most of the universities, they refused uh, to acknowledge any of the courses because um, they don't recognize the university I went to. And that was 
another wall I hit. I didn't want to start from zero. I had finished three years before. And um, I just didn't want to restart university from zero. The flight school was five minutes away from where I live. And that's where I thought maybe this is the time for me to go check if I can do that. I took an appointment and I went there for fun. I didn't have anything in mind. I wasn't sure if I can do this. I knew that they needed a lot of money for me to start at the flying school, but I went there anyway, you know, it was free. So I went and I got hooked. I was pretty sure this is what I wanted. And I started to plan how am I, how will I fund the training and what should I do to start? And this is where I started. Now, talking about your father and your grandfather, both of them worked as pilots for Syrian Air. How do you think having that influence at such an early age really made the decision for you, or at least set it in motion that you would want to be a pilot later on yourself? I think seeing my father and my grandfather as the pilots made me, made me consider to go this way. Because let's say if you grow up in a family where nobody flies, it's kind of out of the question sometimes. You don't even know that you can fly a plane. But growing up and seeing them do it, and actually one of the things that I remember is when we used to fly with my dad, we go in the cockpit. We see them fly the plane in the cockpit. We don't sit in the back. We sit usually on the jump seat. And even later on, um, when I used to fly and uh, the pilots are friends of my father, I used to go in there too and explore. And just seeing them do it makes you think that it, this is something normal, just like being a doctor, just like being an accountant, just like being anything else that you see in life. So that compared to somebody growing up in a family where nobody flies, I pretty much had it there. I didn't know. I, I never thought that it's hard. The only thing I had to face is financially and maybe not having a flight school in Syria. But it really um, influenced me and made me want to go that route, same as they did. I can speak to the experience of someone coming from an entirely non-aviation family. And it may have been a bit bizarre at first for my folks when I said, oh, I want to be a pilot. This is what I want to do. So I think if you have people who are supportive and encouraging, even if you don't come from an aviation background, I think we also end up there. But I, I wouldn't trade my upbringing for anything. But it would have been cool to have gotten to go into the flight deck of different planes as a little kid. Yeah. Now, what was it like to grow up in Syria? Growing up in Syria was um, actually very nice. Um, we have a big family there. And I have a lot of friends in Syria. I, um, I stayed at the same school for 12 years. And then the last two years of my high school, I went to a new school. I'm still in touch with most of my friends uh, because I value friendship a lot, especially that now I'm abroad. So I try to keep uh, uh, in touch with them. But mostly if I had to describe growing up in Syria, it was green. It was lovely. It was um, fun. I left when I was 18 to university and um, I came back to visit my family but the last time I was in Syria was in 2015 so six years ago. So as you've mentioned you originally went to the University of Lebanon for architecture 
What lessons do you think you learned during that experience that you would later apply to aviation? I mean, being a part of the architectural engineering program in general sort of sharpened me and made me who I am because the work that was required, the, um, the project that we had to submit, the delays, the submissions, it made us work so hard. While when I was in high school, you know, there's only so much you can do, so you wouldn't invest in your time the same way you would in university. Um, but I remember all the majors wouldn't have a problem. They would sleep at night. But those who are in uh, architecture would stay without sleeping for two nights in a row, working day and night. And that kind of made me a hard worker. And when I started flying here, I thought it couldn't be that hard to study. It couldn't be hard to prepare because I'm used to that. Moreover, um, going to university was the first experience for me to study uh, in English, which was kind of challenging because I'm not used. I was not used. So I had to study the materials uh, in English. And when I started the aviation here, this made it harder for me to read the manuals and you know to live in English and to fly in English so I think that helped a lot like if I had not been at the university there maybe starting um, aviation in English would have been a bigger challenge just because of the language and that's something you see universally in aviation that English being the global language you always have to get to that certain standard. And I, I feel very fortunate to be uh, a native English speaker because that made aviation a little bit easier, a little bit more attainable for me, but it wasn't yeah. something I'd ever really given any thought to before I found myself there. Yeah, totally. Now you came to Canada in 2017. What was that experience like? I was so excited uh, to come here, but at the same time when I got here, it was kind of a shock for me. First of all, the weather, because we got here in February. I knew it was going to be snowy and cold, but not that much and not for that long. Mm -hmm. um, winter, what, it's six months here. So we were kind of waiting for winter and it was, even in March, it was snowing. So that was really a shock for me. And it kind of, I, I heard that a lot of people, they get kind of depressed because of the weather. So I was trying, making sure that does not happen to me. And the only way to prevent that is finding activities to do in winter, whether it's flying or skiing, <laughs> they both work. Um, so that was kind of a shock for me, but also I had to learn French. Um, I was mentally ready that I needed to learn the language since I live in Quebec. I knew that I had to learn French, but the process while learning French, you know, you can't uh, help but wonder Will I be fluent enough to work here? Especially that I didn't know if I'm gonna continue in architecture or what I will do. So you keep on wondering, will I be fluent enough to fit in? Will I be fluent enough to find a job, to work? And uh, to this day, even though I consider myself fluent in French right now, it's still a little bit hard to speak French all day long. So it's still a challenge, but understanding that it's important makes it makes the process a little bit easier for the new arrivals. And that is part of the immigration and refugee citizenship 
plan within the Canadian government is that you do speak one of the official languages, but it's hard to learn the other one or even one of them if it's not a language that you have any familiarity with. Yeah, and when you're a refugee, it's not really a condition compared to when you come here as an immigrant or on a work visa, you kind of have to have a basic knowledge. But when you're a refugee, it's more of an emergency situation where they have to bring you here. So you don't really have to speak French, but they do have a program for you to learn French and uh, you get paid a certain amount of money while you do the program. And these programs really work. It was really good. It was intensive from eight to four every day, five days a week. I did it for one year. And um, I think the key was throwing myself at work in French. So three months after I arrived here, I found a job and I started working and it was in French. So that helped me a lot to boost my knowledge in French. Do you mind if I ask what job that was? My first job was at Sun News Organization. It's a nonprofit uh, organization that helps. Um, they have a lot of departments. One of the departments I was working for is uh, crime prevention. Uh, basically, my job was helping the police. I was uh, doing the bike patrol in the summer. So we kind of work alongside the police in Montreal, which was pretty cool because it helped me explore the streets in Montreal while um, working on my language. And the team was pretty supportive. The team I was working with was pretty supportive. They, know, they knew my French wasn't the best, so they would help me all the time. I was pretty lucky to you know, be there so that I'm working, I'm exploring the city, I'm working on my French at the same time. And uh, a first job is always uh, a job you don't forget. Especially one that's done in an, an entirely different language. Exactly, exactly. After you got your PPL license, your first passenger was your mom. What was her reaction to watching you pursue aviation and then ultimately achieve your PPL license? When my mom, she came with me flying for the first time, well, it was only one time, um, she said, I had never seen you like that, so focused, so determined. She said that I'm not the same one in the plane and outside the plane, that I'm really focused and not the, not the same nor she knows. That's how she described it. Um, she was very proud. She was very happy, even though she wasn't really thrilled to go in a small plane. You know, like a lot of people, they get scared of the idea of flying in a small plane, but she did it because she wanted to show me that she's really proud of me. My first passenger ever was my mom too. And same with my mom. She wasn't too keen on getting into a Cessna 150, but that's what, that's what moms do. They, they love you that much that they'll get into a small plane for you. Yeah, yeah. You were the first Syrian woman refugee to become a pilot anywhere in the world. What does it mean for you to be the first? As far as I know, yes, I'm the first woman refugee to become a pilot um, from Syria. Um, we do have, though, uh, a woman pilot from Syria. She was the first and the only one back then. Now we have another one, so that makes it only two of them. Uh, they work in Syria. One of them is not working anymore and one still works. And even that, I find that this number has to go up because been so many years and we still don't have enough women in the cockpit in Syria. Now being a Syrian woman refugee to become a pilot, first of all, I always wanted to research 
if there are any Syrian women who were flying before I started my training, just because finding someone like you who is doing the same thing you want to do makes you believe more that it is um, feasible. I did not find anyone, uh, but I wanted to do it anyway, because if you don't have a role model, just become one. How do I feel about it? I, it makes me pretty happy because every day, uh, some girls from Syria, from, from around the world, actually, they write me um, and they want information on becoming a pilot. And I'm always so happy to help them out because I feel like I'm helping them achieve their dream. I'm helping them, you know, find the um, information they need, the information that I needed and I, I didn't really find at first. Um, inspiring them empowers me every day. I'm blown away by your statement of, I didn't necessarily have a role model, so I decided to become one. And the influence and the impact that you have on women and girls all over the world, but particularly in Syria, is profound. You are the example. I really hope they think of me as the example because it's such um, an honor for you to feel like there's a group of people that look up to you, that want to be like you. And the fact that you can try to help them as much as you can, try to guide them, um, it really makes, makes your it makes your soul glow, literally. In 2020, you received an Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship from the 99s to help pursue your Group 1 and multi-IFR. What was it like to be recognized this way? The scholarship that I received changed my life, literally, because I always wanted to apply for it, and I worked so hard applying for it. I spent many months working on applying for it, and not alone, there were uh, many members in my chapter who helped me with this, um, whether it's by motivating me to apply or whether by reviewing my ap uh, application or uh, rooting for me. When I got this scholarship, I felt like I owned the world. Literally, it was the best thing, um, but it came with responsibility because mm -hmm. I got a scholarship to do my multi-rating and I had to prove that I deserve the scholarship. And not only that, I felt that I owe the chapter and I have to give back as much as I can, uh, which is something I already try to do all the time because I try to help as many 99s as I can. But still with the scholarship, I felt like I have a bigger responsibility to be there for them and to help them and encourage them just like there were members that were uh, motivating me before I applied. It was an honor to be awarded the, um, the scholarship, but I feel like I still have to give back all the time. Now, you really can speak to how life-changing scholarships can be. What advice would you have for someone wanting to apply for one of the Amelia Earhart scholarships? First of all, I advise them to start preparing early on don't wait until one month before uh, the deadline um, because the more you work on the scholarship, the more you work on the application, the more you realize that you have to do. And you can never finish 
working on it, you always have to change things. You always have to kind of uh, improve things. Um, the other advice I have is even if you don't receive the scholarship, keep on applying the next year, find another one maybe. Just keep on applying and eventually you will have it, you'll get it. Currently you work as a flight instructor. What is the most rewarding aspect of this role? Aside from soloing students and sending them for a flight test and seeing them licensed and seeing the joy in uh, their eyes, I really do enjoy helping them overcome challenges. When I have a student that's having a hard time to land, hard time to handle the plane, hard time to do a maneuver, I kind of try to give them an example from when I was a student. I remind them that I was a student as well. And I kind of try to give them an example of something similar I had to go through because this helps them a lot to think that if my instructor was like this and now she's like that, then they're gonna be more motivated to work harder on it. And it really works all the time because I see them improving. I see them more motivated and eventually they do overcome the challenge they're working on. And flight instructors really are models for their students. If you can show your students the challenges that you've worked through with flight training, that does rub off on them. And I'm glad to hear that it does influence them and motivate them too. Exactly. And I do remember that from my instructors who, for example, and I don't know if this is a true story, but I do remember that it did uh, help me a lot. I was having troubles with doing engine failure simulations and my instructor said, it's okay, don't worry. I used to... Uh, um, have a hard time to do them as well. And I was like, well, then that's all right. I'm on the right way. It, it just made it look a lot more feasible for me. And that's what I try to do with my students all the time. I don't think we always talk about our challenges or the times where we didn't succeed the way we would have liked in aviation. And it really does make all the difference when you share those with other people that are having a hard time with an exam or a flight test. Because knowing that not getting something on the first try doesn't mean that you can't be a good pilot and a safe pilot. It does make a world of difference knowing that you too can get there because here's someone that you admire who's doing it already. Yeah, and unfortunately the, uh, the culture right now is that all the people wanna brag, they soloed at, I don't know how many, 15 uh, hours, um, they did the flight test at 45, they got 95 on the written exam, but they do not realize how much this affects the people around them. If you hear that your friend soloed at 15 and you're at 30 and you're still struggling with your landing, well, it's not gonna make it easier at all. You're just gonna keep on struggling. And this is something very important that we should not compare ourselves to people because each one learns at, in a different way. Each one learns in a different way. and. Uh, well, if he soloed before, he or she soloed before you, maybe you'll do the flight test before them. Maybe you'll have a better score on the written exam. You can't be so hard on yourself. You really have to try to give yourself all the time you need. Mm -hmm. And having instructors and peers around you who are empathetic and understand that it's challenging and are encouraging and able to speak to some of their own challenges, it makes it a whole lot easier when you don't compare yourself to other people. Absolutely, 100%.
Now, it's a bit of a strange segue going from not wanting to compare yourself to other people, but who is someone in aviation you admire and why? I admire a lot of people. I looked up to so many people when I was doing my training. Now, it's right that I didn't find someone who's similar to me with the background that I have and all, but starting with the 99 community over here, all the people I met, um, I do admire my instructors, though, because they were my role models when I was training, and I always wanted to be like them. Um, I had three, I had many instructors, but among those, I had three amazing instructors that were always trying to uh, work hard with me, not just to fly, but to drive me to the flight school and back home because I didn't have a car. And just because they thought that I'm working hard, they wanted to help. And me seeing them helping me made me even want to work harder. So it was kind of a loop thing um, that worked for my um, advantage, actually. Um, I admire anybody who flies and anybody who works on their dreams. Of course, my first, the biggest role model that I have is my dad. Um, because he's the reason why I wanted to be a pilot like him. And um, even though this is not going to happen, but I always wish that I could fly with him one day. Say, so I remember reading something that you said about your dad, which has stuck with me because I think it's so lovely, which is that he gave you the greatest gift you could give someone, which is a dream. Exactly. Yes. He gave me the dream. And touching back on your fabulous flight instructors from the sounds of it, how do you think having such wonderful instructors influenced the way you instruct now? Um, I had sort of bad experiences with instructors before um, and it wasn't really because of the instructor it was just them and I it just didn't work and then I had fabulous instructors who worked for the best for me and I really think that it affects a lot between wanting to quit and between never wanting to quit for your life like a supportive instructor will want you will make you work so hard on what you want to achieve. While someone who doesn't really care as much, you would start considering to quit just because you're having a struggle with something and they wouldn't really care. Um, so having a supportive instructor is absolutely key into succeeding and achieving your license and falling in love with flying, actually. And staying in love with flying. Yes. Now, what are some things you enjoy outside of aviation? I do enjoy skiing a bit too much. I only started uh, skiing here, so uh, maybe two years ago. And the reason why I enjoy it, because it's just like flying. You're going to be disconnected for the duration that you ski. And it helps you clear your mind. It helps you being focused just on skiing. Maybe this is just me because I'm a new skier. You focus a lot on skiing, and when you finish, you kind of realize that you haven't been thinking about anything, which is something rare we can't do. Even when we try to not think of things, we still do. Um, but this happens to me when I'm flying as well. I'm disconnected. I'm just thinking about my plane, about the sky, about the planes around me, about my students, nothing else. So I kind of feel a lot of connection between skiing and flying. Now, what advice did you have for those considering aviation as a career? 
Um, the first thing I would say, go for it. Do not hesitate. Um, if you have a problem, if you think that you can't do it for whatever reason, don't stop there. Research things. Make sure there is always a solution. Find a plan B, C, D, and all the letters to uh, overcome the challenges that you're facing. Because if you want it to happen, it will happen eventually. Whether you're facing problems convincing your family, whether you want to change the career that you already have and you're not sure, whether it's financially. I didn't have money when I started, but I still found my way. And I had a plan B and plan C in case I didn't find a job. So always find a way around it and you will not regret. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your flying career? The best moment that I can think of right now is the day I became a flight instructor. The day I landed the plane, and usually the examiner, he does not say um, whether you got it or not. Um, so I landed the plane, and I, I was so stressed. I think my face was red. And um, as we left the plane, he said, I don't usually do that, but you're so stressed. So I have to tell you that you passed. The idea of me starting to work as a flight instructor was so huge that I was overwhelmed for a week after that. Mm. Just because I had been working so hard on that for over a year and a half from zero to PPL to CPL and then the flight instructor. I worked so hard on it. I wanted it to happen that when it happened, it did not feel real. And um, that was just an amazing feeling that, it, that I find so hard to describe actually. It would be incredibly rewarding, especially after a condensed period of time, just working so, so hard, as you said, zero to flight instructor in a year and a half, that you would just feel on top of the world for a few days at least. Exactly, yeah. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? You can find me on uh, Instagram at Noor Utayim. Noor Utayim, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was so much fun. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.